Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed. In today's top stories, members of the Virgin Islands Palestinian community joined in protests across the country calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. On Friday, the Committee of the Whole received testimony regarding the ongoing water crisis affecting residents on the island of St. Croix. Progress is made with the reopening of the Charlotte Kimmelman Cancer Institute on the island of St. Thomas. These stories and more on today's WTJX Newsfeed. From the Virgin Islands Public Broadcasting System Studios on St. Thomas, this is the WTJX Newsfeed with Marcelina Ventura Douglas. Welcome to the WTJX Newsfeed, bringing you the latest news and updates throughout our community. Joining others across the U.S. mainland, members of the Virgin Islands Palestinian community joined in protest for a call of ceasefire amid the ongoing war in Gaza. On St. Croix, participants walked from the Cyan Farm Shopping Center's parking lot, ending at the south parking lot of Wendy's in Sunny Isles. On St. Thomas, the march began at the Emil Griffith Baseball parking lot, to the waterfront promenade across from the Alexander Farrelly Justice Complex. We spoke with two of the organizers for the All Out for Gaza March on St. Thomas. My name is Tawfiq Abdel Mohsen. I was born and raised in the Virgin Islands, but I have roots to the Palestinian country. I'm a human that's coming right here to stand up for peace and justice. If I wasn't Palestinian, I would have still been here to stand up for the Palestinian people. I hope right here that we get the senators, especially Stacey Plaskett, because she's our delegate to Congress, and she can send our message to the U.S. government to stop the genocide, ceasefire, peace and liberation for the Palestinian people. Tafik's sister, a core organizer, spoke on what motivated her to hold the St. Thomas March. My name is Hala Sweet, and I know that we have a lot of Palestinians in our community. And looking at their dead pictures on Instagram and Facebook, their body parts bumped to pieces, that wasn't enough for me. And we want people to see Palestinian as humans. So we took the initiative to make this protest so that our voices can be heard. Referring to press releases from the delegate to Congress, Stacey Plaskett, she continued. I didn't think she expressed her outrage of what is happening to the Palestinian um, enough. What she did mention was that she would urge Egypt's border to open up so Palestinians can get there. But what she doesn't understand is that Palestine are those people's home. You can't push them out of their home. What we need is a ceasefire. A ceasefire to stop killing people, and that's what we are demanding, a ceasefire. Um, and she also expressed how what happened on October the 7th was horrific, which I agree, no innocent civilians should be have, have gotten killed. But what she does not understand is that the Palestinian people have been struggling long before than the October 7th. And there was no mention of that. There was no mention of the human rights of the Palestinian people. And I want her to make a statement and asking for a ceasefire. I want her to use that power that she has to, 
of direct access to the president to demand a ceasefire because that's what we want. We want a free Palestine and everybody to be equal. Delegate to Congress Stacey Plaskett was in attendance for the March on St. Croix and provided remarks to the crowd. We also must address the weaponization of hate that is going on, the weaponization of hate in the media that is causing divisions among many of us, the weaponization of hate that is inciting Islamophobia, that is inciting white supremacy, that is inciting anti-Semitism. I know that this is a peaceful group. I know that this group wants a two-state solution, and I am happy to work with you all. In the last several weeks, I have sat with some of your leaders and talked with you about how I can use my office, myself, as a vessel to support you all. And you have my promise that you have the complete work of my office to do that. That I, in my position, will continue to speak to the Biden administration about the ceasefire, about the need for humanitarian aid, about Egypt opening its border, about Israel allowing humanitarian support to come in, about fuel that is necessary and being stopped from coming to go in, that the innocents cannot be slaughtered with those who are guilty, that the rules of war must be followed, and that war must end, that Israel must sit down with Palestinian leaders and begin the dis true discussion on a two-state solution. You're in the WTJX News feed. Would you drink it? I, I, I would drink it. I, I would choose not to drink it, but I understand it's safe to drink. You would choose not to drink it? That's correct. Take a look back at these folks' face back here. These are the people that are suffering in Glen. Understood, sir. These are the people that cannot use the water. You will choose not to drink it. Some of them don't have a choice. If you can't consume it, don't ever tell people around here that it's safe to drink. And that goes for you and the governor. On Friday, the Committee of the Whole convened to receive testimony regarding the ongoing water crisis affecting the St. Croix District's potable water system. Senator Franklin Johnson took aim to Water and Power Authority CEO Andrew Smith's previous comments about the brown water being safe for residents. So the discoloration in the water is uh, from iron, right? Um, that's one of the things that EPA, we've not talked about that at all today, but brown water is different than lead and copper in water, right? Lead and copper is actually clear in water. tell them that it's safe for drinking and you won't drink it? Right. That's my question. I'm not no doctor, no scientist, and don't get me down right. through that lab line. If you won't drink it, why tell my people they should drink it? Why tell them that it is safe? When we look at the EPA, copper is, is not, is not a, a harmful contaminant in water, right? I, that's, that was my only statement, Senator. I did not say people should drink it. I said that the water was safe. While Mr. Smith had been asked numerous times previously, Senator-at-Large Angel Bolquez inquired again whether residents would have to pay for the water. A number of months ago, WAPA instituted an, an increase on the LIAC for water. I was not in favor of it. It jumped to about 22%, 7.82 per kilogallon, up to 9.53 per kilogallon. I want to know, for those who are affected, are you still going to charge them at that rate? 
Let me speak to the to the billing. As I mentioned earlier in my testimony and to some answers to questions, uh, we are structuring a credit program right now. Senators repeatedly expressed concerns about the effects the contaminated water could have on the health of residents. Acting Health Commissioner Dr. Nicole Craigwell Sims shared with lawmakers intentions to ramp up testing. The Department of Health has been in communication with our federal partners throughout the duration of this, and part of that is to expand capacity for testing, to include our bodies and supplies, et cetera. So we have reached out for TA, and we're looking very good for TA, so we'll definitely expand once that re that's received. Following up from Senator Carla Joseph's line of questioning about testing in the St. Thomas-St. John District, Noel Hodge, the authority's director of water distribution, shared with senators intentions to do so. In terms of St. Thomas and the testing, I've ordered staff to begin um, testing. They are, they are in St. Thomas, St. John. We are identifying the sites right now, but um, within the next week, we want to start to deploy with the help if we could get assistance um, from DPNR. And I haven't asked them yet, but I'm sure they'll help out um, to, to, do, to start um, St. Thomas. You're in the WTJX news feed. Shovels up. One, two, three, and dig. All right, CKCI, let's go. Over the weekend, Governor Albert Bryan Jr., members of the 35th legislature, the delegate to Congress, and local government officials and members of the community marked the long-anticipated groundbreaking for the reconstruction of the Charlotte Kimmelman Cancer Institute. Attorney Tina Kamisyong, Chief Executive Officer of the Snyder Regional Medical Center, shared remarks during the ceremony. Today we're full circle, emerging from the devastation that happened during the 2017 hurricanes of Irma and Maria, which closed our Cancer Institute for many years and forced Virgin Islanders to have to travel abroad for care. But today we are here to celebrate and look ahead towards a newer, brighter, and even more advanced Charlotte Kimmelman Cancer Institute. In June 2022, FEMA obligated the necessary funds to begin demolishing the damaged portions of the facility. The $50 million obligation allowed the Snyder Regional Medical Center to complete the necessary demolition work in May of this year and began the solicitation phase for a contractor who would rebuild the facility. Daryl Smalls, the executive director of the Territorial Redevelopment Team, remarked that the groundbreaking was a significant milestone to enhance healthcare in the Virgin Islands. The reconstruction of the Cancer Center is slated to be completed within 18 months after the issuance of the notice to proceed. Simultaneously, the manufacturing of two components of cancer treatment, the CT simulator and linear accelerator, each with an 18-month delivery timeline, will be underway. Once these vital components have been manufactured, shipped, installed, tested, and certified, the doors of the Charlotte Kimmelman Cancer Institute will reopen to provide comprehensive cancer care to our residents. D. Beecher Brown, president of the Community Foundation of the Virgin Islands and friend of Charlotte and Henry Kimmelman family, shared remarks. The legacy of Charlotte Kimmelman lives on not only in the walls of the institutions, but in the countless lives she touched, the inspiration she fueled, and the compassion that she demonstrated. Her legacy is a testament to the enduring power of one individual to make a profound difference. 
And as I look around at this room, I recognize that there is a team here that is about to make a profound difference in the lives of our community. Governor Albert Bryan Jr. closed the ceremony with his own remarks. And the object of the game is to win. And winning is not putting back the Charlotte Kimmelman uh, Cancer Center. Winning is making sure our people are covered, that people in our territory have access to health care. So today, I'm extremely proud to be here, but know that the fight is not over. Recently, Commissioner nominee Avril George and members of the Human Services Department leadership team provided operational updates to the Committee on Health, Hospitals, and Human Services. While the meeting touched on a number of subjects within the large department, Committee Chair Ray Fonseca made inquiry on the department's spending. Can you give us an update on the spending plan and how much funds uh, may be returned and what uh, is going to be your, your path going forward? And also, uh, I wanted you to give me an update on the Office of the Child Care and Regulation Services and the expended formula for the federal funds and the status of, of those grants. So, um, Commissioner George? I will defer to CFO McGrath. Morning, Lydia McGrath, CFO. In terms of our general fund, this year we've done an exceptional job, pretty much utilizing practically all the funds. There's a menial balance left in there that we are actually still paying, um, adjusting salary increases that rolled over to 24 that we will be adjusting over. Um, so we have, once those are adjusted, we should come in pretty close to zero relative to our general fund. Relative to the federal, we have, of course, a whole gamut of various grants. We've pretty much done a fabulous job in spending. Um, again, we're still adjusting costs over to ensure that the funds are used. For those programs that had residual costs, like the Head Start, we were able to roll those monies in and get approval to utilize them in the current fiscal year. So we have a few of our Title IV B and E grants that we have not fully expended. However, we know that's because of not having a cost allocation in place for the department. Relative to our child care, um, and I will let AC Benjamin can give, provide more details. We've pretty much received waivers to continue um, for this current fiscal year to encumber the funds with an additional year to liquidate. Senator Diane Capehart made inquiry on specific benefits for Head Start staffers. Can you tell me, I don't know, Ms. George, if you're able to, to answer this, but the Head Start program is pending a decision on an application for these individuals who work at the Head Start to receive their COLA. Can you give us any update on this? I'll refer to AC Benjamin to respond. Good afternoon, Assistant Thank Commissioner you. Benjamin. That, that decision was already made. The COLA was approved. Um, CFO, are you able to give an update on where we are in terms of getting those? Lydia McGrath, Chief Financial Officer. The NOPAs for the federal employees have been submitted to the Division of Personnel um, for the COLA. And also we're working with OMB for the general fund portion as the feds only provided the funding for the, the federal portion, the federal employees. 
Senator Milton Potter asked Deputy Commissioner Sean Georges on the timeline of moving the department's St. Thomas staff out of the reportedly deteriorating Nude Hansen complex. Do you have any idea what sort of timeline we're looking at um, as far as moving these folks? Are we going to be here next year saying pretty much we're still looking, we're aggressively pursuing um, alternate facilities to accommodate our, our employees? I know you're taking it seriously. I just want to know how very, aggressive very you're serious, working. Very serious, as a matter of fact. And, and What's your goal? As you far know as the size of the complex was the biggest challenge to move yes. 200 people to a location. But we've, we've locked out on two locations where we should be able to move them. One was being built from the ground up at the Lockhart Gardens location. Okay. And then we locked into another location out at, um, at the Tutu Park Mall where we'll be able to move okay. the bulk of our, our team. So we'll be, when we sit down in front of you again, more than yeah. likely... Next year, we will be okay. out of that facility, um, bringing our staff who work so hard into an atmosphere that they can um, work a lot more productively. Funeral services and a series of ceremonies to honor and remember Virgin Islands Fire and Emergency Medical Services Director Daryl George have been announced. A candlelight vigil is planned for November 15th at 6.30 p.m. at the Charles Seals Fire Station Annex in Estate Grove Place on St. Croix. A second vigil will be held on November 16th at 6.30 p.m. at the Omar Brown Sr. Fire Station on St. Thomas. The following day, family, colleagues, and community members can pay their respects on November 17th while Director George lies in state at the Omar Brown Sr. Fire Station from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Funeral services will be held at the Omar Brown Fire Station the following day on November 18th. The viewing is scheduled to take place from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m., followed by service from 9.30 to 11 a.m. The interment will take place immediately afterward at the Western Cemetery No. 1. A repass at Joe's Hotspot will follow. In related news, Richard Mota, Public Relations Director for the Brian Roach Administration, made the announcement today that Governor Albert Bryant has appointed Antonio Stevens as the acting director for the Virgin Islands Fire and Emergency Medical Services. Mr. Stevens, a dedicated veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces with over 17 years of service uh, in the Virgin Islands Fire Service, currently holds the position of assistant director and is the Territorial Hazardous Material and Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator for the agency. The Virgin Islands Department of Education's St. Croix School District announced updated operational hours effective today. The Eulalie Rivera Pre-K through 8 school will extend its school days with operational hours from 7.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. with dismissal beginning at 1.45 p.m. The St. Croix Central High School will implement a hybrid schedule with a daily virtual flex block in-person instruction will take place from 7.40 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., and the remote flexbox or intervention period will occur from 1.15 p.m. to 2.20 p.m. Beginning Wednesday, November 8th, John H. Woodson Jr. High School will implement a hybrid schedule with virtual courses from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., and in-person sessions in the afternoon at the Central High School campus from 12.40 p.m. to 4 p.m., Bus transportation will be provided for students daily, with pickups starting at 11.30 a.m. The St. Croix Educational Complex will also implement a hybrid schedule with a daily virtual flex block. 
Students will receive in-person instruction from 7.40 a.m. to 1.05 p.m., with a hybrid flex block beginning at 1.45 p.m. Over the weekend, St. John residents kicked off Veterans Day celebrations with a parade to honor service members in the territory. The Virgin Islands Director of Veterans Affairs, Patrick Farrell, has the details for upcoming events. St. Croix on Saturday, November 11th at 9 a.m. in the morning, we're going to have the Veterans Day Parade in Christianstead, which is going to start from the Bassin Triangle, and we're going to go right down to the National Park grounds there where the fort is at, and we're going to have the Veterans Day ceremony immediately after the parade. And then later on that same afternoon, Saturday, November 11th, at 3 p.m., we'll have the Veterans Day Parade on the island of St. Thomas. That parade is going to be on Veterans Drive, traveling from west to east. We're going to start from the Griffith Park, going up towards the um, past Fort Christian, and then we're going to have our ceremony uh, right there on the right, on the promenade, on the Veterans Drive promenade. That starts at 3 o'clock. So if you're available for any one of our Veterans Day parades, we'll certainly appreciate your support for our veterans out in the territory. As we move through the news feed, we turn now to our regional report. The former Puerto Rican boxer, Felix Verdejo, received two life sentences on Friday after he was found guilty in the killing of his 27-year-old pregnant girlfriend. Verdejo had participated in the 2012 Olympics and became a professional boxer that year. A federal judge sentenced Verdejo following emotional speeches by the family of Quichla Rodriguez, who was killed in April 2021. Verdejo was found guilty in July of kidnapping that leads to a death and causing the death of an unborn child. His attorney says that they are planning to appeal the sentencing. Reporting from the AP News says that during the trial, Luis Antonio Cadiz, a friend of Verdejo, who was also charged in the case, said the former boxer had pressured Rodriguez to get an abortion. He testified on the day that Verdejo killed Rodriguez, the ex-boxer, punched her and injected her with a toxic substance before they tied her limbs to a cement block and threw her off a busy bridge and into a lagoon in broad daylight. Cadiz later called 911 anonymously and provided the location of Rodriguez's body. An autopsy found that Rodriguez had fentanyl and xylazine, a sedative used for animals in her system. As we update the news feed, we turn now to the territory's weather forecast. Here's the latest look at the short-term forecast for the Virgin Islands. I'm meteorologist Eric Weglars. At St. Croix, scattered showers become more numerous this afternoon under mostly cloudy skies. Highs will only reach the middle to upper 80s. Winds are from the east-southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour. At St. Thomas and St. John, we'll find a bit more sunshine, but scattered showers are still expected later on this afternoon. Temperatures will climb into the upper 80s to near 90. Winds from the southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Clouds are numerous tonight at St. Croix and scattered showers as well. Lows will only fall back into the upper 70s to near 80. Winds remain from the east-southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour, and showers will linger for most of the night. At St. Thomas and St. John, it's mostly cloudy as well. Showers are likely throughout. Temperatures will only fall back to near 80. Winds from the southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Tuesday features clouds and more showers at St. Croix. Temperatures are a bit cooler, only in the lower to middle 80s. Winds from the southeast at 5 to 10. And at St. Thomas and St. St. John will find numerous scattered showers throughout the day as well, 
with mostly cloudy skies expected. Highs will climb into the upper 80s to near 90. Winds from the east-southeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour with more showers expected across the Virgin Islands Wednesday and even Thursday as well. That's the latest look at your short-term forecast. I'm meteorologist Eric Weglars. We are at the end of today's WTJX News Feed. I'm Marcelina Ventura-Douglas. Join me every weekday at 5 p.m. Be sure to download the WTJX app. And if you missed a part of our news, listen to it on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We now return to All Things Considered.